Hi, everyone. It's good to be here with you uh, today. Hope you and your family are doing well. Uh, we are praying for you and your family during this time, and uh, just pray that you would know God's amazing love. And as we're gathered here online, uh, whether you're in your home or with a friend, uh, we're just so glad that we can come to God's Word and grow together. Now, I don't know how many of you uh, have acrophobia, uh, but if you do, you may want to look away right now. I don't know if you realize, but that is the glass floor at the Calgary Tower. And I don't know if any of you have had a chance to actually walk out on that floor, but it is pretty freaky. And uh, as you probably realize, acrophobia is the fear of heights. And speaking of fear of heights, one of the most uh, iconic uh, kind of images of San Francisco is the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, it was designed by a group of engineers Uh, visionary engineers, and it sits at about 4,200 feet from end to end. And at the time uh, when it was built, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world. And during its construction from 1933 to 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge had one of the best safety construction records of any projects at that time. Now keep in mind that during this time, they would basically uh, calculate they would lose one person for every million dollars spent. And with a $35 million budget, that was just too much of a human risk for them to take. So the lead engineer, uh, Joseph Strauss, was absolutely adamant that they were going to do everything to make sure that they would protect their workers on this site. And so they put together the most rigorous building um, safety requirements ever to be put together on a project of that time. And so we had a local manufacturer actually put together uh, these uh, headgear sets that they had to wear on the bridge. And this was actually the prototype for all hard hats that you now see on work sites uh, out there as well. And Strauss also created a hand and face cream that would go on to protect the skin from the cold, icy wind uh, that these workers faced. And they also provided some really cool uh, glare-free goggles uh, for their eyes. In addition, they also ate a special diet uh, to keep them from uh, dizziness while they were working up on these high heights. But the most visible safety uh, precaution was a gigantic safety net that was suspended from end to end under the entire construction area of the bridge. And it actually cost about $130,000 to put that together. In fact, during the construction, this net saved the lives of 19 men who later became known as the Halfway to Hell Club. It's a true story. You can look it up. Now, one of the benefits was they discovered that the men were much more courageous even though they were walking high on these slippery slopes uh, because they knew that there was a mechanism to protect them if they should fall. And this gave them the security and confidence to press on and get the bridge built actually in record time. Now security is a critical element in life, but it's also very elusive. Recent world events demonstrate how insecure our world is. On a personal level, perhaps you live in insecurity because you have been the victim of discrimination. Perhaps you've lost your job during this pandemic and your retirement has plummeted and you're leaving you feeling hopelessly insecure. 
Now, if you reflect on your life, you may realize that you have little or no security in those areas where you crave it the most. Fortunately, in the area that truly matters the most, our relationship with God, we can have ultimate security. And as we'll discover today, Paul uh, declares that God offers believers his unconditional love and acceptance. And now maybe you struggle with that concept. Maybe you've never experienced unconditional love and acceptance from your parents. Perhaps you've experienced rejection or betrayal from a spouse or relative or a friend. And consequently, you're, you're left being skeptical and cynical towards other human beings and relationships because of what you've experienced. And I'm sorry if that's been your experience. But I want you to know today that God's love for you is perfect and he will never let you go. He desires for you to have complete assurance and security in him. And this peace and confidence is absolutely critical if we are to experience the Christian life the way God intended. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 31 is where we're going to continue in our series on Romans. And this may be the most comforting and encouraging passage in the entire Bible. So let's read it. And friends, this is the word of God. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, Romans, as we've been walking through this, we know it's one of the most powerful books in the Bible. And chapter eight has to be like the pinnacle chapter of this book. And now we come to these verses And these are the great crescendo of Romans chapter 8. Because as we've seen in the previous section in verse 18 to 30, Paul describes the mess that creation and believers find themselves. Creation is groaning with frustration while it waits its deliverance. And believers are groaning while they await their final redemption. He also has revealed how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And how God works all things for the good of those who love him. Those who are called according to his purpose. And so this following section, which we are looking at today, from verse 31 to 39, represents what's called a parotion. 
It is the concluding part of a speech intended to inspire enthusiasm in the audience. Now, Aristotle, he, he described it this way. The peroration is placing the hearer under the influence of the passions and of awakening his recollection. So really, this passage forms an important transition between Paul's response to objections about his gospel, how it potentially undermines the moral standards and status of the law on one hand, and to the charges that his gospel uh, does away with Israel's special place in the purposes of God on the other. In other words, Paul is seeking to gain his audience's agreement to what he has argued already so far and to carry them along into his argument in the coming chapters in chapter 9 through 11. And so here, Paul will ask four questions and he uses these not to confront his audience, but truly to encourage them. And so Paul begins his closing remarks with this first question where he says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? Now, these things refer back to Paul's exposition and his defense of the gospel so far in the first eight chapters. And so here's a quick snapshot of some of these things to really awaken our recollection. Going back, salvation has been revealed and God has remained faithful to his covenant. And God's wrath was revealed to humankind by giving them over to their desires to worship and creation rather than God himself who made the creation. This is true of everybody. Even the religious, religious, even those who are supposed to be righteous in the world's eyes. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, religious or not religious, all have turned away from God. But God is faithful to his covenant. We have been made right before Jesus. We can have peace with God. We were once enemies. Now we are his children. And through Adam came death to all. Through Jesus came life to all. We are united with Christ in a way that what is true of him is now true of us. And we have moved from death to life. We are now raised from the dead so that we might bear fruit to God. There is no longer any condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not controlled by sin, but we're controlled by the Spirit. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We eagerly await our full adoption for our adoption to be made complete. Not only do we eagerly await full redemption, but the world longs to be made whole as well. The world longs to be made right. While we long to be made what we are meant to be, the world also longs to be made what it was meant to be. And through Jesus, this is possible. It's actually happening right now. And the sufferings that we are experiencing now will be nothing, will be nothing compared to the glory that we will experience when the entire world is made right. What then shall we say to these things? We have to say what's expressed in another question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the expected answer is obviously no one. That's why Paul adds, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
And so in this reference to God as the one who did not spare his own son, there's probably an allusion to Abraham and his son Isaac. You know, when Abraham was tested by God uh, to take his son up to kill him, but in the end, Isaac was spared. However, when God acted for the salvation of sinful human beings, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So when Paul says that he gave him up for us, he means that God handed him over to death so that Christ would become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so the response to the question, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Is that having given the greatest thing of all, his beloved son, he will withhold nothing beneficial for us. So for the sake of illustration, suppose you walk into a a Ferrari dealership on a whim and you enter a draw and you win and you win a limited edition Ferrari F60 America that costs about $2.5 million. And then you go and you pick it up and they say, there it is, take it, it's yours. Tax-free, take it home but they refuse to give you the key. Ridiculous, right? If the car is yours, whatever you need to drive it is yours. Likewise, since we've received this incredible gift of God's son and salvation in him, it's ridiculous to suppose God will not give us everything else we need. That's why Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So if the God who has purposed our glory is all-powerful, why are we afraid of any opposition at all? If the God who has purposed our glory is willing to give up his most precious possession, his beloved son, why worry about our needs? So Paul continues. He now introduces his next two questions and he picks up again this theme of God as judge. And humanity is now appearing before him in his court of law. And if we go back to chapter two, we were reminded that uh, Paul spoke of God's impartial judgment and he said he would give to each person according to what they had done. And then in chapter three, he spoke of the whole world being held accountable to God and insisted that no human being would be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. And so here again, he speaks of God as judge, but this time It is believers who stand in his court of law. But in their case, Paul says, God will entertain no accusations brought against them for he has already justified them. Already Christ has died for them and now he intercedes on their behalf. So the second question is this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now it's not stated, but Paul probably has in mind here the charges brought against God's people by Satan, the accuser of all humanity. And now these charges probably would have substance because all are guilty of sin before God. 
And the answer to Paul's second question is that no one, no one will be able to bring charges against God's elect because it is God who justifies. The third question carries this point then deeper. In verse 34, he says, who is it to condemn? And the verb to condemn that Paul uses here means to pronounce a sentence upon a person after determination of guilt. And the answer to the question, who is to condemn? No one. And it's for this very important reason in verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Remember in, back in verse uh, 26, it, we're told that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf because of our weakness in us not knowing what to pray for. But here we are told that the crucified and risen Christ now intercedes for us in light of our possible condemnation. He acts as our advocate to God at whose right hand he sits and he pleads the success of his atoning sacrifice so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe in him. So if God who has purposed our future glory has declared us righteous, if the Christ who has lived a perfect life and died a perfect death is standing before the Father on our behalf, why ever feel guilty or unforgiven if that is what Christ is doing for us? Which leads to our last question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And this is the last question because all the other questions really were just a version of this one. Because the only thing that we really have to fear that would really harm us is to be separated from the love of Christ. And the answer to this question, who shall separate us, is once again, no one. God will allow nothing to separate us from his love. So verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Paul here is speaking autobiographically, having experienced all that he has just written about. And he affirms that none of this, absolutely nothing can separate us from Christ's love. And he quotes Psalm 44 to show that the tribulation believers face are nothing new, but they have always been characteristic of God's people. Let me say that again. The tribulations believers face are nothing new. They are simply characteristic of God's people and they always have been. And in light of that reality, he concludes, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Literally, he's saying we are super conquerors. We are victors. We are super victors, more than conquerors. That is what we are now. 
and how we will regard ourselves through all eternity. Which brings us to the triumphant conclusion to Paul's response to the fourth question, which was, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And in fact, the whole culmination of his gospel presentation and defense so far. And so at this point, Paul lets it all out. It's as if you're sitting down at a keyboard of a great organ and you pulled out all the stops, fortissimo. It's like the ending of one of those great symphonic finales, like Beethoven's uh, Symphony Number no. 9, Movement 4. It just gets more epic and epic and epic and just this big finale conclusion. And Paul's emotion, he even, he's so emotional here, he even switches to the first person. And this is what he says in verse 38. For I am sure. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the central question of the Christian life, the one that prompts all of our doubts, our worries, our tensions is this. Is there anyone or anything that can separate me from Christ's love for me? And as Paul's first readers and his readers today look around and we see many things that would seem to seem to do that. Trouble, hardship, persecution comes to all believers. Famine, nakedness, danger, sword comes to many. The experience of God's people through the ages has very often been in the words of Psalm 44, to face death daily. There are many obstacles and many much opposition and surely any one of them could detach us from Christ's love, couldn't they? And Paul says, no. And in fact, even in the worst of circumstances, we are more than conquerors. Nothing can break the chain of verse 30 in this chapter. Christians triumph through and over the worst that life brings. Why? Because God does not lose any he foreknew. God is always working for the good of those who love him. He is in loving, sovereign control of every aspect of human history. And so Paul is convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in human experience, death or life, nothing in the spiritual realm, angels or demons, nothing in time, present or future, nothing, anything that opposes God, all of the powers of the world in space, height or depth, nothing in all of creation, nothing, nothing can separate us from Christ's love. Why? Because God loves us simply because of his choice. Not because of anything in us which may change and nor anything around us which may change. He loves us because he loves us. Now consider how practical Paul is being. He is saying, friend, have you been called by God? Have you found the gospel coming into your soul with power? Have you asked God to make you right in his eyes? 
That is great. Now realize this, that would not and could not have happened unless the great God of heaven had set his love on us in the depths of eternity before time and is now perfectly working out his plan to live with you forever in his family. So the purpose of these questions is almost to beat us out of our disbelief that we have been saved totally by grace and therefore completely safe to face fear, to face life without fear. It is incredible, relentless, intense logic. It's what Martin Lloyd-Jones called logic on fire. Paul is saying, think. Are you afraid? You aren't thinking. Are you worried? You aren't thinking. Are you feeling guilty? You aren't thinking. Do you see the logic of free grace and justification? These aren't just dry doctrines. These are life itself. And if you are not living with overwhelming assurance and power, you haven't fully really understood them. As one author writes, Paul has spoken And we must speak of the love of the one true God. This love of God calls across the dark intervals of meaning, reaches into the depths of human despair, embraces those lives in the shadow of death or the overbright light of present life, challenges the rulers of the world and shows them as a sham, looks at the present with clear faith and at the future with sure hope, overcomes all the powers that might get in the way, fills the outer dimensions of the cosmos and declares to the world that God is God, that Jesus, the Messiah, is the world's true Lord and that in him, love has won the victory. So friends, if you believe that God can somehow stop loving us, that there is something that we can do to lose his favor, that somehow we aren't worth loving, that somehow he is not for us, if you believe that or anything like that, you are wrong. You may think that God has given up on you, but you are wrong. God is for us and nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. So is there anything that can separate you from the everlasting love of God. What is your response? It should be no. So wherever you are, I want you to respond. Is there anything that can separate you from God's everlasting love? No. Be encouraged today of how much God loves you no matter what you're walking through, no matter what you're facing. Nothing will separate you from his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we praise you and we, we thank you that we can know today through your word that you're for us. And because you're for us, who can be against us? And we praise you that we can be certain of this because you have already given us the best, the greatest gift of all, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so, Father, we rejoice in the security that whatever happens, you will not stop loving those who are your children because you have promised that the pressures and distresses of this life will not separate us from your love, nor will persecution, nor lack of life's basic provisions, the risk of death, not even that, or anything on earth or in the spiritual realm, not our present circumstances or our future situation. No person, no sin, no circumstance can stop you from loving us. Oh, Father, would you open our eyes to see this grace and kindness you have shown to us in the person of Jesus and help us by your spirit to keep marveling at these truths that we read today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're so glad that you could join us uh, this weekend and we hope you can join us again for our online liturgy uh, this next weekend. And as you go into this week, receive these words. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his favor shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.